in any case, welcome to Dull Sunday School. Um, we're going to press further uh, into the medieval church today, looking at that, the history of that tug of war uh, between popes and emperors, um, bishops and kings. And uh, it's a little bit of an ugly history. I, I think you'll recall we left off last week with the truly outrageous story of the donation of Constantine, uh, that, that faked document. We have popes behaving like, uh, like junior high boys, faking hall passes in order to uh, have free run of things. Um, but of course, it's much more serious than that because the donation of Constantine was uh, eventually accepted and incorporated into canon law and used to, um, to legitimize popes claiming the right and the power, not just uh, power of primacy or power of uh, honor, being first, of, uh, first among equals or first place in terms of those who should be honored, but actually claiming power of jurisdiction, legal power to crown and to make uh, kings. So it's a, it's a pretty serious history. Um, and and if, if the events that we described last week were unfortunate, tending towards tragic, uh, this week, looking through the medieval church, uh, tragedy is about to turn to comedy uh, in a way. If you have a dark sense of humor like I do, some of the stories we're about to, about to hear uh, can, can really only horrify you to bring you to, 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 to laughter. Um, it really is true that tragedy sometimes turns to comedy. Um, but I want to say at the outset, this is an important note, um, we're not surveying medieval church history in order to give you sort of a sense of the whole. We're not trying to give you an even treatment of the theology of the, uh, of the age where many uh, bright and, and cheerful things were happening theologically. Uh, I'm not trying to, we're not touching on at all the history of missions, medieval missions, um, bringing the gospel to, uh, to the far ends of the earth. Um, the rise of the university systems, the training of, uh, the new training of scholars in the church. Um, there are happy stories that could be told about the medieval period, and we're not focusing on that at all. We're focusing on a very specific question, which is the question of the relationship between uh, the church and civil powers. And that particular story is a tragic one. It's, there's more, more unfortunate events than, than happy and fortunate ones. And in particular, we're focusing on the See of Rome or the Bishop of Rome. And that uh, is a story where there really are some unfortunate events. Just thinking about the sermon uh, from this morning. The medieval period, the story of the rise of the Bishop of Rome to becoming the Pope um, is, is a story of someone forgetting the values uh, that Paul uh, lays out in 1 Corinthians, uh, where a minister is supposed to embrace um, all Christians, but especially ministers, are supposed to embrace humility, suffering, um, being foolish in the eyes of the world. Uh, the rise of, of the Bishop of Rome is a story of someone uh, refusing, resisting those gospel values and claiming for himself power and greed. You know? And the first chapter of James says that uh, when, we're, when we're tempted, um, we can, people particularly... Um, unbelievers can be dragged away by their evil desires, um, enticed, dragged away, imprisoned, 
um, and, and through that enters death. And, and that's the sad story that we begin uh, with today. A whole series, I gave you a few of their names, we won't spend much time uh, on them, but a whole series of medieval um, popes, bishops of Rome, who came to very unfortunate, unhappy ends. Um, this is where tragedy, tragedy turns to comedy. You know, it's true, uh, the rain shines on the just, or the sun shines on the just and the unjust, um, and sometimes the, the wicked seem to prosper. Uh, those are truths, those are things we observe around us, and Scripture tells us that that's true. But it's also the case that sometimes people's evil acts and wickedness uh, catches up with them, and we see their consequences in someone's life. Uh, sin is an ugly master, and corruption, greed, lust for power uh, was an affliction, uh, a temptation uh, that most of these popes pursued. So let me just give you uh, some details. There's a period of church history from, um, from roughly 900 to 980. Um, this 80-year period of church history wins for the whole medieval period the title of the Dark Ages, um, particularly thinking about these popes. Later, later historians began to use the title Dark Ages with specific reference to these, these gentlemen. There are more. Let me give you some details. Um, okay, Hadrian III was probably murdered. His body disappeared uh, Stephen VI, um, welcome back to him. John X um, was suffocated in his sleep by his enemies. He was fighting with various uh, powerful Italian families for control of Rome, and they, uh, they suffocated him in his sleep. Stephen VIII uh, was tortured and died of his injuries. Um, such was his lust of powers that he wound up with the entire city of Rome against him. And so the, the Bishop of Rome was put in prison, not for gospel preaching and for faithfulness uh, to the scriptures, but, um, but because he, he needed to be uh, shut down by, by his enemies. Uh, Pope Formosus. Pope Formosus is, is probably one of the most bizarre stories of the, of the Middle Ages. Um, Pope Formosus died. I mean, he, he reigned for a few years and died. Um, and a year after his death, his successor pope dug up his body, dressed him in, in papal robes, and held a trial, a heresy trial, found him guilty, <laughs> and, then, and then dismembered what was ever, what, whatever could have been left of him and a, a year later, and then, and then threw his remains in the Tiber River. A totally bizarre story. His successor pope, by the way, uh, Stephen VI and Stephen VII, um, he was murdered uh, a few years after this uh, debacle played out. Well, I won't go into the details of why this happened, but um, his successor pope, Stephen VI, in order to legitimate his own claim um, to the papal throne, uh, uh, had to um, basically had to nullify Formosus's um, consecration of him as the bishop. And so, for, for a variety of complicated reasons, that's how that story plays out. You get a point. There's, a, there's some real low points here in the history of the papacy. John XII, the last um, we'll talk about, he was elected pope when he was 17 years old. Um, uh, 
primarily because his, money, his, his family had the money to secure him the papacy. Um, he was a known uh, sort of debauched character, uh, a womanizer. Um, he perhaps got his just desserts when he was 28. He was pope for 10 years. When he was 28 years old, um, prepared to be horrified, he suffered a stroke while in bed with, with a married woman while committing adultery and then died a week later. All right, so this whole list of popes that, that, uh, that earns for, for the whole age the, t- the label the Dark Ages. Um, so this is a dark, a dark history. What we find essentially uh, in the early medieval and the late medieval church are all manner of triangulations uh, of power. The tug of war isn't just a tug of war between pope and emperor, but there are really multiple characters. Um, there are important bishops of important cities, and also there are kings uh, of various regions, and then there's the emperor. Um, there are five patriarchs, um, five important bishops from the ancient church going on into the medieval period. Um, we could just list them quickly. They, they may be important and they come back into the story. Um, where was the first place where Christianity was really sort of established? And does anyone know? Antioch. Antioch is one of the um, ancient patriarchates. Jerusalem. Uh, the third. North Africa, I think. Alexandria. And probably the fourth in terms of order being established was Rome itself. Um, so remember when we started, at the time of persecution, when the, when the church really desperately needed strong leaders, bishops of these cities that had a lot of Christians in them slowly rose to power, sort of organizing, uh, if you will, the, the, the resistance. Um, well, as persecution of Christianity fell away, um, the bishops of these various cities, the patriarchs, the fathers sort of in the faith, um, continued to, um, to, to you know, re- retain their, their importance. Um, at the time of Constantine, a new patriarch was added in Constantinople. So the fifth patriarchate is, is Constantinople. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> now, as, um, as Constantine relocated the empire to Constantinople as the, as the capital, the new Rome, um, gradually there's a, an east-west. It's Constantinople and Rome, those two bishops. The bishop of Rome and the patriarch of Constantinople um, are constantly vying for power. Um, it isn't until 451 when um, um, the patriarch sort of has official status, claims for himself and 451 to be uh, second in honor behind the Bishop of Rome, but first in jurisdiction over the Eastern, Eastern Empire. Um, eventually, there's another patriarch added. Uh, anyone know what the sixth patriarch is? It's a little... Christian jeopardy. Moscow, Russia, yeah. Moscow 
is added, but Moscow isn't added for a very long time. Uh, in the 1580s, you don't get another really important leader in the Eastern Church until, until the 16th century, you know, 40 or 50 years after the Reformation. Um, that's a kind of a, well, we don't have much time. In church order? Well, we would say um, elder, presbyter, bishop, these, these terms are, are almost interchangeable in Scripture. Um, but in the early church, about the time of the 5th, the 6th century, um, the bishop starts to be at the top. Um, the, he, a bishop could also be appointed an archbishop, be over a, a, a much broader region. So it's a hierarchy. Um, at the top would be the pope, eventually, as the bishop of Rome, who's over archbishops, um, who's over cardinals and, and, and bishops of smaller cities. So slowly, these cities fade in importance. Rome and Constantinople are the big players. Um, Moscow, I won't tell you that story. Um, we'll save that for, for another date. There was a kind of kidnapping hostage situation. Uh, Ivan the Terrible, probably most of you have heard of Ivan the Terrible, who, who deserves his name. His son essentially kidnapped the, the, the Patriarch of Constantinople um, in order to secure a Patriarchate of Moscow. Um, he invited the Patriarch of Well, now I'm telling you the story. This is kind of amusing. Um, I'm laughing because it's my dark sense of humor. But um, he invites uh, uh, Ivan the Terrible son, Theodore I, invites the Patriarch of Constantinople to a, a big party in Moscow. The party goes on for a while, puts him up in the, you know, in the palace, and, and eventually the Patriarch of Constantinople thinks he'd maybe about time to go home and starts to realize that his doors are locked at night. <laughs> maybe he's not so free to leave. Uh, and he asks to leave, and, and, uh, and Theodore says, if you uh, elevate the Metropolitan, the highest religious leader in Moscow, if you elevate him to the status of Patriarch, you can go home. So I think probably fearing for his life, he, he, he elevated the Metropolitan and Patriarch, uh, and in 1580s, Moscow is, is one of the patriarchs in the church. Um, okay, so you have um, Eastern and Western. Um, you have popes, and in the East, um, you have a patriarch. Um, but you also have kings in the West, king of France, um, kings or princes of Germany. You also have the emperor um, in the east, uh, ruling from Constantinople. Sometimes the Holy Roman Empire is divided and there's a, an emperor in the west and an emperor in the east. So you get the point. There are triangulations of power. Everyone is, is looking for authority. Um, and there are two great schisms in church history. Uh, the first one takes place in 1054, um, and it's a schism between the Eastern and Western Church. And it's over primarily politics. It's primarily over uh, lust for power. Um, so let me give you a little background, and then we'll, we'll talk about um, the, the Great Schism in 1054, separating the Eastern and Western Churches. Let me introduce the characters first. In the West, um, we have Pope Nicholas. We'll just call him Nick. Um, in the East, we have a patriarch named Ignatius and an emperor named Michael. 
the uh, third. Michael the third, as the emperor, happens to be a sort of despicable character. This is taking place in the 18, uh, sorry, 850s to uh, 860s. Um, by all accounts, Emperor uh, Michael was an alcoholic, um, had several problems um, that complicated his rule, and the Patriarch of Constantinople, Ignatius, criticized him, um, called him to, to account. And, and for his efforts, Michael III uh, deposed him, kicked him out of office, and appointed uh, a new Patriarch of Constantinople, a man named Photius or Photius. Well, Photius, um, now the, the, the Patriarch of Constantinople, writes a letter to the Pope in Rome in the West, Nicholas I, introducing himself, kind of letter of introduction, that sort of thing. Um, but there's a problem. Photius was a layman, wasn't an office bearer at all in the church, just a regular Christian, and Michael plucked him mostly from obscurity and made him the patriarch. And Nicholas objects to this, to the elevation of a layman to the patriarchate of Constantinople in, in one in one move. He also objects to the fact that the emperor is the one who chose um, the, the patriarch instead of, uh, instead of the church. So he refuses to acknowledge Photius as the patriarch. But he's clever. Pope Nicholas um, is eager for land, for power, for control. So he proposes, he hatches a plot and, uh, and sends papal legates to Constantinople to make a deal. Here's the deal. In the southern part of Italy, in the 850s, there were uh, a whole um, host of, of churches that followed Eastern rites or the Eastern liturgy. So they worshiped in Greek instead of in Latin. And they had, it was sort of like worship wars of the, of the ninth century you could call it. Um, they di use different kinds of communion bread. Um, in the West, they use unleavened communion bread. In the East, they use leavened communion bread. Um, there, are, there are all kinds of important uh, symbolic things in the hand gestures. Uh, if you ever see sort of medieval icons or paintings, um, sometimes, you know, when important church leaders are holding up fingers of blessing, sometimes they hold up Three fingers, mine are really black. Uh, sometimes they hold up three fingers. <laughs> exactly. Uh, symbolizing uh, the Trinity. But other times they hold up just two fingers, symbolizing the two natures of Christ. Right? Well, one, is, yeah, exactly. <laughs> be, be careful. Don't tell Reverend Brown. Uh, Sunday school is taking a dark turn. Um, well, I, I don't remember which one's in the east, which one's in the right, but uh, in the west. But the eastern use one version, and the western uses another version. So different communion breads, different ways of, of, of pronouncing the benediction at the end of services. This is worship wars stuff. Um, well, southern Italy, there are um, churches practicing eastern rites and looking to, um, to Constantinople. So Nicholas, here's the deal that he proposes um, if you, I will recognize Photius as patriarch 
if you grant back to the West all these churches in southern Italy. So they'll remain loyal to the Bishop of Rome and pay their taxes to the Bishop of Rome, etc. So that's the deal he proposes. Um, well, Emperor Michael is not all that happy about this deal. So he tricks the papal legates. He invites them to a, a hearing. Ignatius is still alive. So he has like a, you know, like a, um, like a, a hearing before Congress. People come to testify. And he has the papal legates from the West listen to Ignatius and listen to Photius and say, well, now you choose. Who's, who's the better patriarch here? And the legates, probably under pressure, probably because they're tricked, decide, yeah, you made a good choice. Photius is the guy. So they legitimize and recognize Photius and then go back to Rome to tell Pope Nicholas. Well, he's not at all happy. There's no land, and the patriarch has been recognized by the papal legates. Um, so the first thing he does in, in 860, 863 is excommunicate the patriarch of Constantinople. Um, Photius is, is excommunicated. And then he excommunicates Emperor Michael as well. Well, news travels, um, and Photius responds in kind, and in 867, a few years later, excommunicates right, Pope Nicholas. Okay? This is the beginning of uh, a, papal, a, a major schism in the church. Um, two out of the five leaders have excommunicated each other. Right? This throws Christendom into, into real you know, chaos and, and, and disorder. It turns out, um, Photius was actually implicated in uh, a murder plot and was deposed, and Ignatius was restored uh, for a few years. And then eventually Ignatius dies, and Photius is restored. Um, he was deposed again and then just disappears from history. We don't know how he died or where he died, um, but after, after all this sad story, he just disappears, and, and there's a new, um, a new patriarch of Constantinople. So that's sort of the background. Um, we haven't gotten to the Great Schism yet. They're just mutual excommunications, um, but the next bishop, the next patriarch, um, they, they, they smooth things over a little bit. Um, coming to the schism itself, I'll introduce the characters again. Um, in, in, uh, <coughs> in the West, we have Pope Leo, uh, the ninth, um, who's the Pope, um, and and in the East, the Patriarch. I have to look. I can't remember. Um, the Patriarch in the East here is Michael. That's right, a different Michael, not Michael the Emperor, Michael Michael uh, Carolarius, uh, Michael K. We'll call him. Um, well, there bickering back and forth about um, the filioque clause, uh, about the double procession of the spirit, which is also a part of this, uh, part of this debate. Um, but the actual setting, the story for uh, the Great Schism that, that is finalized in 1054 um, actually begins in southern Italy with those same group of Eastern Rite Christians in southern Italy. Um, a number of anti-Byzantine rebels begin attacking churches and Eastern Rite Christians in the south of Italy. 
and actually overthrow, overrun some of these towns and villages where Greek-speaking Christians lived in, in the southern part of Italy. Um, so Leo IX seizes on the opportunity to take back what Nicholas had, had, had tried to barter for 150 years earlier. And because of the success of the anti-Byzantine or anti-Eastern rebels, Pope Leo IX enforces Western rights on the churches in southern Italy. Okay? Um, well, what do you suppose Patriarch Michael does in Constantinople? It turns out there are uh, Western rite churches in Constantinople following the Western liturgy. Well, he takes them over, sort of a tit for tat. So Leo IX enforces Western rites on the churches in southern Italy, and Patriarch Michael forces Western rites um, on the churches in Constantinople. Well, Leo IX's none too happy about this. Um, he sends uh, an, an ill-tempered man, Cardinal Humbert. Cardinal Humbert, who was the papal secretary, um, he sends him east to figure out what's going on. Um, Cardinal Humbert went with a letter of excommunication in hand, and in the middle of July of 1054, right before the evening service, he walked right down the center of the Church of Holy Wisdom in Constantinople and placed a letter of excommunication on the altar excommunicating Patriarch Michael. Um, a major shock to Christians, uh, but we've been here before at this point. Well, Patriarch Michael responds in kind. Um, about two weeks later, he sends a letter of excommunication, excommunicating Leo IX again. And from that point on, uh, the great schism has never been healed. Um, mutual excommunications stand, and that's the great schism. Eastern and Western churches are, uh, are, are, are at war uh, with each other. Should I say something about the filioque? Uh, I should, uh, just a little bit. Um, my argument would be, and I, I think most church historians would, would agree with this, primarily the schism between East and West was a political schism. It, it took place in particular because the East felt like the West, the Bishop of Rome with his little bit of inferiority complex, uh, was overreaching, claiming for himself um, not just um, uh, a place of honor, but actual jurisdiction um, over, all of, over all of Christendom. There was a theological aspect to this, namely the debate about this Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son. But even, uh, it's called the filioque clause. Um, filioque clause, right? The original form of the Nicene Creed um, has the Spirit proceeding from the Father. Well, in about the 6th uh, century at the Council of Toledo, Western churches started including from the Father and the Son. And the East objected to this, in part theologically, but primarily because they saw the Western churches, without holding an ecumenical council, unilaterally inserting something into the Nicene Creed, just adding something. I mean, what if Santee just said, you know, we decided we're going to uh, add 
a question to the Heidelberg Catechism without asking anyone else. Um, it, it would be insulting. Whether or not there was good theological reason for it, um, it was not the proper way politically um, and ecclesiastically to go about things. Um, but in the East, the filioque clause became a, mostly a political slogan. To reject the filioque was to reject the Bishop of Rome's claim for superiority over the church. Um, so there was a theological aspect to it, but even that was primarily about church politics. How does one go about changing or modifying uh, an ecclesiastical document? Um, so that's where, uh, that's where the Eastern and Western churches split. Um, you know, there were various attempts to reunite the East and the West, um, none of which were, were successful. There was even an attempt in the, in the 16th, 17th century to, uh, to try to reunite them, but, but it came to, um, came to nothing. To add insult to injury, the Western churches uh, were involved in the Crusades to the Middle East. Um, I want to mention just something about the Fourth, the fourth Crusade. The Ottoman Empire, uh, the Turkish Empire, um, marched on some of those ancient, ancient uh, patriarchates. And in, at the end of the 11th century, so the, 10, the 1080s, the 1090s, right after the Great Schism, um, the Ottoman Empire, Muslim uh, Turkish Empire, captured Antioch, captured Jerusalem, um, captured much of the Middle East. And so uh, the Bishop of Rome, along with Western rulers, mounted together an army and sent them on crusade. So the first crusade, which was really the only successful crusade, um, was mounted in order to recapture Antioch and Jerusalem for Christendom, uh, away, from, away from the Turks. And they were successful. They took back the very end of the century, like 1099, I think, um, the Western papal armies uh, recaptured uh, Jerusalem. But then there was a second crusade um, that was... A, a disaster. I don't think the papal armies even, even reached uh, the Middle East. For a variety of reasons, they turned back. A third crusade um, was maybe partially successful. The fourth crusade um, was a disaster. Irreparable harm between the Eastern and Western churches because of what happened in the fourth crusade. Um, real quickly, the, the story is the Western armies, um, the papal armies, were marching east on their way to try to retake Jerusalem again because it was lost. And on the way, sort of passing by Constantinople, um, the emperor of, of Constantinople was, was deposed by his enemies, kicked out of power. So the emperor and the emperor's son asked the western armies passing by to help them, restore them to power. And if they'll restore uh, the emperor to power in the east, one, they will give him sort of cash payment. Uh, and two, they'll send him some soldiers uh, on crusade to, to Jerusalem. So it's kind of, it won't take much of your time. Just while you're on the way, um, put us back in power, and we'll make it worth your while. So they do. So in, in 1204, 1204, Papal armies from the West restore the emperor of, of Constantinople. And then they ask for their payment. 
Well, it turns out the Emperor of Constantinople was basically bankrupt. He had, he had no money at all and couldn't pay. Uh, so the papal armies, 1204, spent a week just destroying the city. I mean, they just they destroyed everything. They killed people. Um, these are fellow, fellow, fellow Christians, Eastern Christians. Destroyed churches. Uh, you know, it, it was they plundered the city in the full medieval sense of the word, and and that in particular, 1204, the East never forgave. Uh, they, they've never forgiven it. Uh, it was a major blow to the East-West relations, even even all this time after the. The, uh, the initial schism. Um, what's the moral of the story? How do we put this on the brighter side? Um, if you form a church army, always collect your cash payments in advance. That's, that's the moral of the story. No, that's, that's a terrible moral. Uh, we'll think of something uh, to say at the end. Um, that's the Fourth Crusade. Um, No, they were they they lined their pockets with um, with wealth from from Constantinople and and never got any further. They went went back home. Um, I mean, these are second and third sons looking for livelihood, some way to be established, and and so they turned around and, and went home. Never made it to the Middle East, and that was the the end of the Fourth uh, Crusade. Um, Constantinople, by the way, was was also sacked in in fourteen seventies. I want to say, by the Turks, um, and so it remained Christian until the uh, the end of the 15th century, uh, and it's and it's been primarily a Muslim city um, ever since. So it was really almost on the eve of the Reformation. It turns out here's a silver lining: um, there were all kinds of remarkable things that happened as a result of Constantinople falling to the Ottomans in the, in the 15th century. I mean, in God's providence, mysteriously, a number of Eastern Christians um, took their libraries and fled to the West, bringing all kind, a treasure, basically, of uh, Greek theology, um, the study of the Greek language, it's, it's pretty interesting. Within five years of the sacking of Constantinople by the Turks, all these Greek professors show up in Paris, having been run out of the city, and start teaching Greek classes, right? This, this is part of what brings about the Renaissance. Part of Marsilius of, uh, or not Marsilius of Badua, um, uh Nicholas of Cusa, Lorenzo Valla, part of the Renaissance people who discovered that the donation of Constantine was a forgery, they're learning uh, Greek and Hebrew for the first time, in part because Constantinople was sacked and, and, and Eastern theologians and, and, uh, and linguists are, are coming to the West. Um, there wouldn't have been a Reformation without the recovery of the Greek New Testament, for example. Um, and that primarily came about because of of that event in 1470, so that's the great, um, the great schism. That's the uh, something of the power struggle between the East and the West. Um, how about looking at at just um, Western developments after that? Um, there's something called the investiture controversy. <clears throat> In the 1070s and 80s, 
let's say. Um, the investiture controversy is a tug of war between the Bishop of Rome and a German prince. Um, the German prince is Henry the Fourth, and Leo the Ninth. Um, that same Leo who uh, Latinized the Greek-speaking churches in in Rome was involved in. Um, <coughs> no, excuse me. Sorry, it couldn't have been Leo. Um, Gregory. There are a lot of Gregories. It turns out Gregory the Seventh is the Bishop of Rome. Pope. And Henry the Fourth is a German prince. Well, Henry, uh, sorry, Gregory the Seventh was a, a great, a great reformer um, in the church. Despite the story I'm about to tell, um, he wanted to try to clean up in some in some way, the bureaucracy of the church, to eliminate simony, the sale of church offices to the highest bidder, um, to try to standardize um, the liturgies, to improve education of priests, etc. Um, he was a reformer. But as sometimes happens, reformers with big, ambitious plans um, are impatient with, with the slow machinery uh, of church politics. And so Gregory VII thought that the best way to pull, out, uh, pull, uh, pull off his reforms was simply to assume power himself, sort of eliminate, for all practical purposes, uh, the rest of the church hierarchy, become essentially a dictator, to simply enforce the policies um, that, he, uh, that he had designed for the reform of the church. And so that's what he did. He began going way beyond the donation of Constantine and claiming for himself... Um, not just the power to uh, crown kings, but actually the power of a king to simply be also a secular ruler um, over the region as well as the spiritual ruler. Uh, so this isn't a two swords theory like we talked about before. He claimed for himself uh, universal jurisdiction over secular and uh, religious world um, to rule as the king. Well, a whole host of princes and kings didn't, didn't care for this all. Henry IV is the one who tried to call, call Gregory's bluff. Um, he wrote several things, had his German theologians. This all plays out in Germany, which is kind of interesting. We're headed towards the, towards the Reformation, where the German princes are resisting the popes in Rome for doing similar sorts of things. People have long memories, you might say. Um, well, Henry IV um, says, you know what? You're overreaching. And he um, deposes Gregory and, and the Concordat of Worms. He has a little synod in Worms in Germany, right where Luther will be in 1521, um, without the Pope being there, of course. And he says, the Pope's not the Pope. Um, he's deposed. We should choose a new Pope. Well, Gregory responds in kind and excommunicates um, Henry IV. Um, and, and, and Henry IV, for a while, um, actually seems to be heartbroken about this. And so he goes to Gregory um, to, to repent. Um, there's a very famous story somewhere in northern Italy. Um, Henry dresses in penitential garb. 
He goes in the middle of winter um, to one of the papal palaces in northern Italy. Gregory's there and locks the door. Makes Henry stand outside in the cold, dressed in his penitential garb, and says, come, come back tomorrow. Depending on my mood, maybe I'll let you in. Um, he comes back again the next day, knocks on the door, refused entry the next day. On the fourth day, finally, Gregory said, okay, you can come in and apologize now. Brings him in. Henry apologizes. Um, the excommunication is lifted. Um, but Henry didn't forget. Two years later, he organizes the German princes and a whole host of bishops from other cities and towns in Europe. And in uh, 11, uh, 1180, um, deposes Gregory VII, but doesn't want to leave the, the seat vacant anymore. He elects an anti-pope. Clement III, who happened to be the Bishop of Milan, is chosen by Henry and declared to be the pope. History remembers him as an anti-pope, meaning he was ruled as a pope for a while, but was not recognized today, isn't recognized by the Church of Rome as having really been the pope. Gregory, they say, was really the pope. So Gregory, again, excommunicates Henry, obviously excommunicates Clement III. Um, he dies. There's a new pope in place. Henry dies, and his son, Henry V, um, elects another pope. So for a period of about 60 years, there are, there's an anti-pope and a pope mutually excommunicating each other with bishops of different cities being loyal to these different men. Here's a real, a real irony of all of this, is, is that most of the anti-popes actually lived in Rome, but the ones recognized as the legitimate bishops of Rome lived in exile and other parts of Europe. For about 60 years, there were popes and, and anti-popes. Um, if any of you recognize, even to, to, the, to this day, much of, of the Roman Catholic claim for authority and power um, stems from arguments about apostolic succession. The argument is made that uh, the Bishop of Rome has been uh, appointed by the successors of St. Peter, one after another, who physically laid hands on, on and anointed uh, the next bishop. So in an unbroken line of hands laying on hands, laying on hands, unbroken, um, the Pope today uh, uh, is the appropriate head, head of the church. Um, well, a 60-year schism with popes and anti-popes complicates that significantly. Um, I won't go into more details, but there's a question of how many bishops were uh, appointed bishops by anti-popes? And if they, in turn lay their hands on the next bishops or bishops in other cities, are, have those bishops all been dutifully and properly appointed bishops if they've come from an anti-pope? It only takes one, po one bishop in the chain of succession to break the idea of apostolic succession, in other words. Um, we can, we can uh, follow up with questions about that if there are uh, any more questions. Well, the papal um, investiture controversy ends um, who has the power to appoint bishops? Who has the power to, um, to uh, anoint kings? The investiture controversy finally ends in uh, 1123. 
1123, a church council meets, um, and, and finally the rest of Europe is ready to get rid of the anti-popes, acknowledge one pope who then returns to Rome, um, and, and, and uh, at the first uh, Lateran Council, they established that only, only bishops, only the church, has the power to anoint bishops. The emperor, Henry IV, has no power to anoint a pope. So we're, we're basically back to, um, to, to Constantine. Well, in the aftermath, to, to wind up here, in the aftermath of all of this, the successors of Gregory VII um, learned some lessons, not necessarily the right lessons, uh, but they really consolidated power after, after uh, Gregory VII and even revised the, the rhetoric about papal authority. Until, until the 1120s and 30s, uh, the Bishop of Rome was uh, called the Pope or the Bishop of Rome, but he's usually called the, the successor uh, of, of Peter, the vicar of Peter meaning ruling over Peter's see. But from the 1130s on, Gregory's immediate successor begins to use the term vicar of Christ, which is a more universal claim. And they begin uh, writing about um, Old Testament prophecies being fulfilled in the see of Rome. Here's a quotation from uh, Innocent III, one of Gregory's uh, successors, commenting on the book of Jeremiah, on Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 10. This is Innocent III, Bishop of Rome, and here's how, um, in the aftermath of the investiture controversy, the bishops start to think about, about their place in the world. The prophet Jeremiah speaks to the Pope when he says, quote, I have set you over nations and over kingdoms to root up and to pull down and to waste and destroy and to build and to plant. To me is said in the person of the apostle, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. There are others called to be a part of that care, but Peter alone assumed the plenitude of power. You can see then who is this servant set over the household. Truly, the vicar of Christ, successor of Peter, anointed of the Lord, a God of Pharaoh, set between God and man. You can see then who is set over the household, lower than God, but higher than man, who judges all and is judged by no one. That's Gregory's successor. Um, a doubling down, in other words, on the claim for for authority, um, really wanting to, to have it all. Um, a couple of uh, things then that, that we can say about this whole medieval period. Um, one, we see the East and West tensions over, over politics, um, more about politics than theology. In other words, there were worship wars, but it's really about who has power, patriarch in Constantinople, the Bishop of Rome. Um, and that ultimately led to a, a, a schism, long before the Reformation, in other words. Uh, whatever, uh, whatever damage the Counter-Reformation and the Reformation may have done to the appearance of unity in the church, there was a major schism uh, that occurred some 500 years before the Reformation. 
Um, sometimes Roman Catholics like to say that the Reformation sort of broke the church apart, uh, something along those lines. Uh, we'll talk about that in a week or two, and why, why we think that's uh, not the case. Uh, but you'd have to say um, there were major breaks in the church, the Great Schism being one of them over politics. Uh, we also see the tug of war um, between popes and, and, uh, and, and emperors. Um, but we also see the beginning of a story about, about the rise of Islam. Right in the 11th century, there have been tensions between Christians and Muslims uh, going all the way back to the medieval period. Um, and maybe at some point we should do something on the, the history of, uh, of, of Islam here. Um, finally, though, we see um, a political theology uh, theology driven by uh, not biblical interpretation, uh, but biblical misinterpretation, as we just heard from, from Jeremiah. Um, really, corruption, uh, greed, uh, is what's driving political theology um, at this point. Depressing note uh, on which to end, um, but are there any questions? Next week, we're looking at, um, before we take questions, next week, we're looking at the second great schism of the church. The first was in 1054, the next is called the Avignon Papacy, and that brings us right up into the Renaissance period, sort of almost the eve of the Reformation. Um, there was a pope. Uh, we're back to the popes and anti-pope situation, and again, politics is, is at the heart of it. Uh, are there any questions? Maybe one question. Quick one, Angela. So, You know, like, like most um, ages of church history, regular Christians just kept their head down, lived life, have families, have work, life's busy. And, and what the Pope is doing in Rome is not, uh, you know, something that you hear, you hear stories about, um, but doesn't, doesn't really impact you all that much. Um, and so I really do want to, I, I don't want to give the impression that, that the situation was worse than it was. The situation with the Bishop of Rome was, was truly outrageous. But there are many um, uh, happy things about medieval church history. Um, oh, are we done? Oh, okay, sorry. Okay, the natives, there are probably three of my natives that are very restless. Let's just pray quickly and we'll, we'll go on our way. Um, Father, we know uh, from the prophet Isaiah that... Uh, the grass withers and the flower fades, uh, but that the word uh, of the Lord abides forever. We take comfort uh, from that. Your word is sure, it's true, it's trustworthy. We can count on your covenant promises and grace because you secured them for us in your son, uh, in Christ our Lord. Um, He is the exalted one. Uh, Be with us uh, this day. Help us to rest secure in him and to return uh, this evening uh, ready to worship and again hear from your sure and certain word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.